You're listening to audio from Plank Grove Harvest Church located in Crossville, Tennessee. If you'd like more information about our church and its various ministries, please visit our website at www.plankgroveharvest.org. So tonight, like I said, we're going to be in chapters 22 through 24. I would encourage you to read that on your own and, and maybe do a little bit more of a deep dive. There's a lot of material to cover, and I don't want to keep you in chains here for hours. But uh, what we're starting tonight is this third round of conversations. Everybody can do a little dance of celebration, because uh, there's only three rounds of conversation. So we're about to, to leave Job's friends. So this third time through is the last time that we're going to hear him speak. And um, it's true that we've seen there they've not been very much comfort for Job. And to be real honest with you, all they've done like I mentioned in that prayer, is they've hurled false accusations at Job and, and they've just brought him more pain. You know, he's looking for comfort. The original intent, supposedly, from these three friends is to provide comfort and yet all we get is more pain. And this third round of conversations, we just see more of the same. And so we're back to Eliphaz tonight and, and we're going to see Eliphaz kind of follow up on Zophar's accusations that we saw last week, and he just basically disregards all that Job says in between and just continues with the full court press. And it's also interesting to see tonight, we'll see in chapters 23 and 24, that I think Job's fed up. He's just heard enough because he doesn't really even entertain what Eliphaz has to say. He doesn't necessarily speak directly back to Eliphaz. It's more in my, in my humble opinion, it's more of a conversation with God than it is with Eliphaz because he's just he's just sick of what his friends have provided or what they've not provided. And uh, I, I've kind of just titled this tonight an appeal for justice. And I think that's what we see from Job is just this cry out to God for justice and mercy. And so we'll start in chapter 22. This is where we hear from Eliphaz. And he says, Can a man be profitable to God? Surely he who is wise is profitable to himself. Is it any pleasure to the Almighty if you are right? Or is it gain to him if you make your ways blameless? Is it for your fear of him that he reproves you and enters into judgment with you? Is not your evil abundant? There's no end to your iniquities. For you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing and stripped the naked of their clothing. You've given no water to the weary to drink, and you've withheld bread from the hungry. The man with power possessed the land, and the favored man lived in it. You've sent widows away empty, and the arms of the fatherless were crushed. Therefore, snares are all around you, and sudden terror overwhelms you. Or darkness, so that you cannot see, and a flood of water covers you. Is not God high in the heavens? See the high stars, how lofty they are? But you say, what does God know? Can he judge through the deep darkness? Thick clouds veil him, so that he does not see. And he walks on the vault of heaven. Will you keep to the old way that wicked men have trod? They were snatched away before their time. Their foundation was washed away. They, say, they said to God, Depart from us, and what can the Almighty do to us? Yet he filled their houses with good things, but the counsel of the wicked is far from me. The righteous see it and are glad. The innocent one mocks at them, saying, Surely our adversaries are cut off, and what they left the fire has consumed. Agree with God and be at peace. Thereby good will come to you. Receive instruction from his mouth and lay up his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you will be built up. If you remove injustice far from your tents, if you lay gold in the dust and gold of Ophir among the stones of the torrent bed, then the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver. For then you will delight yourself in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. 
You will make your prayer to him, and he will hear you, and you will pay your vows. You will decide on a matter, and it will be established for you, and light will shine on your ways. For when they are humbled, you say, Is it because of pride? But he saves the lowly. He delivers even the one who is not innocent. Who will be delivered through the cleanliness of your hands? There's a lot going on there with Eliphaz, and it's interesting, kind of a shift early on. uh, He begins with what seems to be a more generous tone, and it almost looks like he's willing to give Job the benefit of the doubt. And, And one might even begin to think that Job has possibly swayed him a little bit into believing that maybe Job's actually innocent. He, he says in verse 2, Can a man be profitable to God? Surely he who is wise is profitable to himself. Is it any pleasure to the Almighty if you are in the right, or is it gain to him if you make your ways blameless? So Eliphaz's argument in those first few verses basically amounts to, So what? So what, Job? Quit crying. God doesn't need you, and regardless of what you do or don't do, God's not going to be impressed. He says, Can a man be profitable to God? In other words, what do you have to offer him, Job? So let's just assume for a second that you are right. What do you have to offer God anyway? Does God gain anything from it? So you're blameless. That's what you claim to be. But what does God gain from that? So it's just an interesting argument for Eliphaz. It almost seems like he's conceding the fact that maybe, maybe you are, but what does God get from it? And I think we have to recognize that Eliphaz's theology is just a little off because Scripture does tell us in multiple places that God takes pleasure in those that do His will. He takes pleasure in those that love Him and, and do what He commands. We see that in Psalm 147.11, Psalm 149.4. There's just two examples. But God takes pleasure in those who do what He asks. But Eliphaz does have a point, to a point, that... What can we bring to God, right? He's completely sovereign. He's completely in control of all things. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. What, what do we have to bring to Him, right? But just when you think that Eliphaz concedes the point that, okay, Job, maybe you're right. Maybe you are blameless. He kind of pulls the rug out from under him. And he says in verse 4, Is it for your fear of Him that He reproves you and enters into His judgment with you? So he completely flips the script right there, and it's almost as he was saying, now wait a second, Job, that that prior argument, that was just hypothetical, just to prove a point. Like, I don't really believe that. Like, you're still wicked. But even if you are what you say you are, what what can you provide to God? So he goes on right there and says, is it because you fear him that he reproves you? You can feel the condescending and sarcastic tone there that Eliphaz has when speaking to Job. He's saying, does God bring judgment upon you? Is what you're dealing with a result of your fear for him? It's almost as if he's saying, so you're telling me, Job, that God's completely dropped the hammer on you because you respect him and fear him so much and because you've been completely obedient to him. That's why he's dropped the hammer on you? I mean, that really makes a lot of sense. That's what Eliphaz is saying. So he says that that can't be true because it's not logical. It doesn't make sense. The only thing that does make sense is I can see with my own eyes that God has dropped a hammer on you. So that has to mean that you're evil and that your evil is abundant. He says there's no end to your sin. 
And it's interesting that Eliphaz has kind of, there's kind of been a shift, a progression along all of these conversations. He's not pinning one sin on Job, but he's pinning a lifestyle of sin on Job. So we've come a long way from the conversations where they started and where they are now. There's a little sin in your life, Job, you need to repent. And now it's gotten to the point where you're living in a constant lifestyle of sin. You need to repent. So Eliphaz is saying, listen, the only thing that makes sense, Job, is that you're wicked and you're paying the price. And then in verses 6 through 20, what we see is Eliphaz doubles down on what Zophar had just told Job. He says, you've exacted pledges on your brothers for nothing. You stripped the naked of their clothing. You didn't give water to those that were weary. You've withheld bread from the hungry. The man with power possessed the land, and the favored man lived in it. Guess who that was, Job? That was you. You're the man with power, and you withheld all of this from those that are less fortunate. You sent widows away. The arms of the fatherless were crushed. Remember, that's what Zophar said. He accused Job. He says, Job, you've been crying and saying, what is my sin? Tell me. Be specific. What is it? And so Zophar comes up with this accusation of, you've, you've treated the less fortunate terribly. You've taken advantage of them. All these things that you have was built off their back. And now Eliphaz is saying more of the same. He says, you've taken the possessions of the poor. You didn't give them food. You didn't give them water. You sent away the needy. And that's a high charge. Right? I mean, there's some weight there because God has high expectations of his people to care for the less fortunate. So Eliphaz describes Job as a man with power. He says, you're the favored man. You're the man with power in the land. And what you've done, Job, is you've abused that power. Now, here's, here's what's really interesting. What's Eliphaz doing? What's Eliphaz doing that very moment? Who's the man in a position of power now? Who's the less fortunate and the needy now? Eliphaz has given Job a little taste of what he's accusing Job of. He's the one that has an opportunity to comfort. And what's he doing? It's, it's a prime example of what, you know, in our culture, someone would say, that's, that's a picture of the pot calling the kettle black. That's, that's what's going on right there. Eliphaz is saying, this is what you're guilty of, Job, while he's guilty of the very same thing he's accusing Job of. And what we see, what we should learn from that, is it's this problem that we've seen this whole time of assumption. What Eliphaz is doing is he's taking what he views to be the, the effects of sin. So all of this that you're dealing with, Job, is the aftermath or the effects of your sin, of your sinful lifestyle. And he takes all of those things and he uses them to assume the cause, right, or the sin itself. He's saying this is all you're dealing with. So the, the logical assumption here is that you're dealing with all this because of this sin. But you can't do that. He also slaps Job around a little bit for what he assumes to be Job's position concerning God. He says in verse 12, Is not God high in the heavens? See the high stars, how lofty they are. But you say, this is what I've heard from you, Job, what does God know? Can he judge through the deep darkness? Thick clouds veil him so that he doesn't see, and he walks on the vault of heaven. 
So he accuses Job of perceiving God to be too distant and too far away to know what's really going on. Job, you're, you're whining and crying over here and making this charge that God doesn't even really know what's going on with you. Again, it's more the same. It's more assumption than it is fact. Now, we have to admit, Job's question God's silence, but Eliphaz's interpretation of what Job believes is a bit of a stretch. And that's putting it mildly. Job hasn't gone that far. And again, if, if, if we put ourselves in a similar situation, rarely does anything good come from assumptions. I mean, there's a saying in our culture that we can't repeat from the pulpit, but if, you know, you can't assume... It's just going to get you in trouble, especially when we're talking about someone's sin and someone's eternity. The follower of the one true God is commanded to love God and love others. That's what he's commanded to do. That's described as the two greatest commandments in both the Old and the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 13, 7, it's interesting how... Dale was talking before about how God weaves people together. It's interesting how he weaves different people and different messages together. Last Sunday, we, we talked about that love chapter on Sunday morning. And 1 Corinthians 13, 7 is from that chapter, and it implies that believers are to see the best in people. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to see the best in people. It says specifically, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And what Eliphaz is doing with Job is the exact opposite. He's assuming the worst in Job. He's saying, I'm seeing what you're dealing with, so I automatically assume that it's because of all of these terrible things, even though he has no evidence or proof. Eliphaz presses Job. In verse 15, he says, Will you keep the old way that wicked men have trod? He says, Are you going to continue the stubborn to be stubborn and stick to your wicked ways, just like all men of all time. Are you going to continue to do that, Job? And it seems to me like he's drawing a comparison here to those in Noah's flood that were swept away. He says, they were snatched away before their time, their foundation was washed away. So you can see the picture there of, you know, we turn our back on God, Noah, hey, it's going to rain, you need to repent, and I got room in the boat. Boat, haha, what's a boat? Rain, haha, what's rain? And then here comes the rain, and they get swept away. So Eliphaz is saying, Are you going to keep the old way that wicked men have trod? Are you going to be just like those guys? I'm trying to warn you, and you won't listen. It's also interesting in verse 19, and I think there's a big lesson here for us. In verse 19, he says, The righteous see it, and they're glad. He says, is this what you're going to do, Job? Are you going to cling to the wicked way? Are you going to continue to go down this path and pay the price? And then he says, just a few verses later, the righteous see it and they're glad. Eliphaz appears to gloat in Job's suffering. He appears to gloat in the judgment that he's receiving. Again, how far have we come? You've got friends traveling to comfort their friend. And now they're gloating in their suffering. He ends his little speech here, the last that we hear from Eliphaz, by calling Job to repentance. And we've, we've got to, we've got to throw Eliphaz 
a small little bone here. We've got to give him a little pat on the back. Okay, because he attempts to draw Job to repentance. Because look at verse 21. We can pat him on the back and slap him across the face at the same time. In verse 21, he says, Agree with God and be at peace. Thereby good will come to you. Receive instruction from his mouth and lay up his words in your heart. How about that? Eliphaz is drawing Job back to God's word of instruction. That's the, the word that you see in your English Bible, it says receive instruction. That is the Hebrew word Torah. He's drawing him back to the word. He should be commended to that. But at the same time, he should be rebuked for it on some level because this is the first time that any of Job's friends have pointed back to God's commands. Now, we're not sure what type of revelation from God that individuals had in the day of Job. We don't know. This is one of the oldest books in the Bible. We don't, we don't know what they had. But this simple verse... And this simple statement from Eliphaz tells us they had something. They had something. And he's drawing Job back to that. But here's the problem. Again, we're three rounds into conversation. Three rounds. If you want to get real technical about it, this is the seventh interaction that Job had with his friends. We go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And this is the first time that somebody's pointed back to the instruction of God. That's a major mistake because it's the first place they should go, not the last. What have we heard prior to this? Tradition, experience, my own feelings. It kind of sounds like 2021, doesn't it? Draw them back to the Word of God. Now, while normally a follower of God calling a sinner back to repentance, that's a good thing. But like we've seen in all these previous chapters, it doesn't apply to Job because he's blameless. I can't draw someone back to repentance regarding an accusation of sin that's assumed. I can't present myself to someone else like I know all the details when I know none of the details. And that's what we see from Eliphaz. The good news is it's the last thing we see from Eliphaz. We don't have to hear him anymore. But we go to chapter 23, and like I said before, we see Job, and man, he's... <laughs> whatever, dude. I'm sick of it. I'm tired of hearing it. doesn't even entertain it. And what we see, I think, in chapter 23 is somewhat of a conversation that Job's having with himself. It says, it says Then Job answered and said... Yeah, and again, I, maybe I'm way off target here, but I think he's talking out loud and he's talking to himself. He's not very interested in re returning fire to Eliphaz. He's tired of hearing it. He says, Today also my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, he would pay attention to me. There an upright man could argue with him, and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I don't perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I still do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I don't see him, but he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. My foot has held fast to his steps. 
I have kept his way and have not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. But he is unchangeable, and who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. For he will complete what he appoints for me. And many such things are in his mind. Therefore, I am terrified at his presence. When I consider, I am in dread of him. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me, yet I am not silenced because of the darkness, nor because thick darkness covers my face. This whole chapter we see Job waver back and forth. He's a confused man. He starts out by essentially saying, this doesn't make any sense to me. He's grown deaf to what his friends have said. He's tired of false accusations. And he's mentioned before, his primary frustration is with God's silence. He's not frustrated with God's friends. He wants to, with his friends, he wants to hear from God. It's a frustrated and confused man who's wavering back and forth regarding his own situation and position before God. Again, I think it's a conversation. It's an out loud conversation with himself. And these first two verses, he's simply stating, I don't understand what's going on. He says, I've grown more bitter by the day because of what I'm dealing with. My spirits are low and I'm tired. I'm exhausted. None of it makes sense. And I feel alone in all this darkness. But then he shifts gears in verses 3 through 12. And he's all of a sudden, he's as certain of everything. He comes across in these verses as very confident and very bold. He says, if I could find God, if I could find him. He's already stated before, I I don't feel him around. I don't feel his presence. And if we go back to the first two chapters, he walked with him. He felt his presence constantly, and now he feels like God is absent. I can't find him. But he says, if I could, I would lay my case before him. I'd be full of arguments. i got plenty to argue. I'm even confident in what God would say to me, how he would respond. He wouldn't contend with me. He'd listen to me. Because I'm upright and I'm blameless. I would be allowed to argue. And I'd be found innocent. But the truth is, I can't find him. I don't know where to find him. I don't sense his presence. But he knows how to find me. He knows exactly where I am. There's a little bit of rebuttal in there to what Eliphaz said before. Hey, Job, aren't you the one that said he's too distant and too far away? Job's like, I'm not talking to you. But you're still going to hear what I have to say. He says, he knows where to find me. And when he finally shows up, I'm going to come out smelling like a rose. That's what he says. The specific words he uses, I'm going to come out like gold. I'm going to come out like refined gold that's been through the fire and I'm going to be pure. Because I know that I'm upright and blameless. He's essentially saying, oh, if I wish that day would come, it can't come fast enough. Because I've held fast to my faithfulness. I haven't departed from his commandments. Again, I'm not talking to you, but you're going to hear what I'm saying. You're telling me to go back to his instruction. I'm telling you, I've held fast to my faithfulness. I haven't departed from his instruction. I've treasured his teaching so much that it's been more important to me than the bountiful food that I had on my table. 
not just generic food. Remember, I was the, one of the wealthiest people in this region. I had whatever food I wanted. I had the best of the best. And I treasured God's instruction more than any of that food. He was and He is my priority. And that hasn't changed. And because of that, I'm going to be set free. That's what Job's saying in those verses. But he turns on a dime in the blink of an eye. And his viewpoint changes. It's almost like he stops himself or he has second thoughts about the situation that he's in. Because he thinks, well, I know I'm innocent. I know I'm going to be proven innocent, but wait a second. God doesn't change. So what's next for me? If no one can change his mind, how can I change his mind? Because what he desires to do, he's most certainly going to do. He set a course for my life and he's going to fulfill it regardless of what I desire. And when I stop to think about that, I become terrified. Why? Because what if he wants to keep me here? What if he wants to keep me here? This is not where I want to be, but what if he wants to keep me here? What am I going to do about it? The thought of that terrifies me. I'm in dread of him. That's what he says specifically. I am in dread of him because I know that he has the ability to keep me here and there's nothing I can do about it, regardless of whether I'm blameless or not. Verse 17 is very interesting to me. It says, yet, so all of those things, I'm terrified because he's the one in charge. He doesn't change. If he wants to keep me here, he can. Yet, I am not silenced because of that darkness. Job's moved from complete confidence to a complete lack of confidence. He moves from a position of believing that he has some sense of control over his situation to one who believes that he has no control over his situation. And ultimately he rests and and fears in the fact that God is in control. But it's interesting that he still doesn't shy away from crying out to God about his perceived injustice. There's something going on there about God's going to hear me. God desires to hear from me. If I've been blameless and upright, God's going to do what God's going to do, but he desires to hear from his people. And I'm not going to keep my mouth shut. Chapter 24, I think what we see is more frustration, but basically an appeal for justice. Job says, Why are not times of judgment kept by the Almighty And why do those who know him never see his days? Some move landmarks. They seize flocks and pasture them. They drive away the donkey of the fatherless. They take the widow's ox for a pledge. They thrust the poor off the road. The poor of the earth all hide themselves. Behold, like wild donkeys in the desert, the poor go out to their toil seeking game. The wasteland yields food for their children. They gather their fodder in the field and they glean the vineyard of the wicked man. They lie all night naked without clothing and have no covering in the cold. They are wet with the rain of the mountains and cling to the rock for their lack of shelter. There are those who snatch the fatherless child from the breast and they take a pledge against the poor. They go about naked without clothing. Hungry, they carry the sheaves. Among the olive rows of the wicked, they make oil and they tread the winepress but suffer thirst. From out of the city, the dying groan and the soul of the wounded cries for help. Yet God charges no one with wrong. That's a bold statement. There are those who rebel against the light, who are not acquainted with its ways, and do not stay in its path. The murderer rises before it is light, that he may kill the poor and the needy. And the night, and in the night, he's like a thief. 
The eye of the adulterer also waits for the twilight, saying, No eye will see me, and he veils his face. In the dark they dig through houses. By day they shut themselves up. They do not know the light, for deep darkness is morning to all of them, for they are friends with the terrors of deep darkness. You say, Swift are they on the face of the waters. Their portion is cursed in the land. No treader turns toward their vineyards. Drought and heat snatch away the snow waters. So to Sheol, those who have sinned, the womb forgets them, the worm finds their sweet. They're no longer remembered, so wickedness is broken like a tree. They wrong the barren, childless woman and do no good to the widow. Yet God prolongs the life of the mighty by his power. They rise up when they despair of life. He gives them security and they're supported, and his eyes are upon their ways. They're exalted a little while and then are gone. They are brought low and gathered up like all others. They're cut off like the heads of grain. If it's not so, who will prove me a liar? And show that there is nothing in what I say. All of 20, chapter 24, Job's pointing to the prosperity of the wicked. It's a rebuttal of his friend's comments all up to this point. But it's also, I think, a cry out to God. And we can go into a lot of detail, but to spare you, this is what Job's com- complaints include. He says, The wicked, they steal other people's property. They take advantage of and fail to care for the poor and the less fortunate. They rebel against God. They murder. They commit adultery. They do their wicked deeds in darkness. They afflict widows and take advantage of women. All of these things, and you say they're cursed and will fade judgment, and yet I see no judgment. He says it's almost, it almost is as if God prolongs the life of the wicked and gives them security. He's saying, I know that they're eventually punished, right? Everybody dies. They're going to get theirs. But why do they not get it now? Why not sooner? It's just a frustrated man crying out to God. He says, this doesn't make sense. I know who I am. I know who they are. What gives? And then he calls out his friends and he says, if I'm lying, tell me I'm lying. Like have the guts to step out and face me man to man and call me a liar. Because you won't do that because you know what I'm saying is the truth. You say otherwise, but I'm not seeing it. And it's almost as if he's crying out to God saying, why am I not seeing it? Why is it not different? Why are the wicked not judged immediately? It's almost like you can read read between the lines and he's saying, why are the wicked not judged immediately and yet i find myself in the position i'm in right now that making sense the whole chapter is a cry out from job in response to his friends in response to his own circumstances and in response to what he's seen in his lifetime and it's all it's not it's not adding up it just doesn't add up why is he being punished, right? That's his perception. He's not being punished, but that's the perception that he has. If you were placed in Job's situation, you'd feel the same exact way. Why am I being punished? Why am I being punished when I've been blameless and the wicked appear to be flourishing? It's almost as if Job's just saying, where's the justice? Where is it? And that's how we leave the end of chapter 24. It's an interesting place to, to hang our hat, but you'll have to come back next week to, to pick up the next. But, you know, what can we learn from these three chapters? I've got four simple 
application points. But the first is we can't assume or perceive the worst in others. It's not what we're called to be as Christians. Right? We're, we're supposed to practice and exemplify the love of Christ. How did Christ treat the, the woman at the well? How did Christ treat the tax collector? How did, he didn't assume the worst in people. He reached out to all people. That's what we're called to be. We're not, a, we're not called to assume the worst in others. I think the big lesson here is we're not to rejoice in another's suffering. We're not to rejoice in another person's judgment. I mean, we're called in the New Testament to preach the gospel so that we may snatch others out of the fire. We're trying to snatch them out of the judgment, not place them in the judgment. Again, you go back to we're supposed to assume the best in people. We're supposed to exemplify the love of Christ. We don't exemplify the love of Christ by hoping for eternal damnation on another soul. That's what we see Eliphaz do. And I think what we're supposed to learn from that is flashing neon sign, don't be Eliphaz. We also should have a healthy fear of God. We see that from Job. I'm terrified. You're the one that's in control. We should have a healthy fear of God, but we should also have a trust in God that fosters conversation. Hebrews 4.16 tells us we should approach the throne with confidence. We're not supposed to curl up in the corner. We're supposed to approach the throne with confidence. We should have a healthy fear of God, but we should also trust Him enough to have a conversation with Him. Job says, even in this darkness, I'm not going to remain silent. And you've heard me say it before, and I'll say it again. God desperately desires honest prayer. He doesn't want to hear, you know, a perfectly grammatical prayer that has big, long words that sounds nice and fancy. He wants to know your heart. Those two, in some sense, should go hand in hand. If I have a healthy fear of God, then I better be having a conversation with him. Because if he wants to hear from me and I fear him, then I better get to talking. The last thing I have written down is that our heart is called to fall in line with God, not usurp him. We're called to be faithful, especially in the difficult. When we hear Job cry out, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't make sense. Why, is it, why are they not judged yesterday? I'm called to be faithful. I'm not in the seat of the judge. And I'm not supposed to have a heart that steps aside and says, okay, God, if you're not going to judge him, I will. I'll take care of it. That's not the position he's placed me in. My heart is to fall in line with God. What have you called me to do, God? Be faithful and be obedient. And that's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to let you shake out the rest. And that doesn't mean I'm going to like it. And that doesn't mean I'm going to understand it. But I'm going to recognize that's what I'm called to do. I, I Personally, I have a very difficult time with that. Because I'm a man of action and I like to take care of business. But my grandfather used to say all the time, you don't have to fight God's battles for him. It's not our position to take care of things because we don't agree with how God's handling them. 
Our position is to have a heart that falls in line with God's heart. We're supposed to see people the way that God sees people. We're supposed to love people the way that God loves people. Be faithful, be obedient. I almost wrote down, even in the difficult, but not even in the difficult, especially in the difficult. Especially in the difficult. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for just the ability to study this book, the ability to walk through uh, just an understanding of suffering, an understanding of frustration, even if it provides us with nothing more than the comfort that even the most faithful people in Scripture were frustrated. Even the most faithful people in Scripture didn't always understand what you were doing. Lord, I pray that when we find ourselves in similar situations, that we would always act with the love of Christ and we would always be faithful and obedient regardless of whether we understand what you're doing or not. May we be faithful to you. May we, you'll, you'll sort it out, Lord. May we just be faithful and obedient. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.